It's Thursday, June 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Senate Republicans led by Senator Tim Scott have introduced their police reform bill called the Justice Act. The bill aims to improve data collection about police use of force and no-knock warrants, document police misconduct, and direct the DOJ to establish de-escalation guidelines. Lee Zhou, politics reporter at Vox, joins us for more on the GOP's police reform bill. Next, as we continue to reopen the country, many eyes will be on Europe as they begin to roll out contact tracing apps across various countries there. Germany just became the latest to release their app, but its effectiveness will depend on how many people actually download and use it. Bojan Panchevsky, Germany correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the apps work and privacy concerns. Finally, as we learn more about the virus, some good news for policymakers facing tough decisions about how to reopen schools and daycare centers. A recent study finds that children and teenagers are only half as likely to get infected with the coronavirus as adults age 20 and older. What's more, they usually don't develop harsh symptoms even if they get infected. Joel Achenbach, science writer at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Data collection or the information is around making sure that when serious bodily injury occurs or death, that all that information is reported to the FBI. Today, only 40% of the departments report that information to the FBI. Joining us now is Lee Zhou, politics reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. Senate Republicans have introduced their police reform bill. This is after the Democrats have already produced their bill. The president has signed an executive order on police reforms. So everybody seems to be on board that something needs to be done. Although how we get there, there's a lot of differences still. The Republican bill is centered around a few key things. Improved data collection about the police use of force and no-knock warrants. They also want state and local police stations to document police misconduct. And they want the Justice Department to establish de-escalation guidance, something that everybody could follow there. It's called the Justice Act. Lee, tell us a little bit more about it. The bill centers heavily on data collection and transparency. And what it's focusing on is really just getting a better understanding of how often are police using different degrees of force and how often are they using tactics like no-knock warrants in order to understand how lawmakers can craft policy that could either restrict that or address the ways that police might be abusing these maneuvers. The second piece of it is really focused on more transparency around misconduct, which we just really don't know a lot about right now. For example, a police officer could be fired from a particular job for misconduct, and that information is not provided to everyone. So that person could get rehired in a different station in a different locality. So this bill, much like Democrats' bill, focuses on getting more information about who's gotten in trouble before and trying to communicate that to people so that they don't get rehired again. Let's talk a little bit about some of the comparisons that it might have to the House Democratic bill. There is some overlap in certain things, such as creating some type of database for police misconduct, but there are a few key differences. And one of them is about qualified immunity. And the Democrats have this in their bill. The Republicans do not. 
That is a significant difference because qualified immunity is this legal provision that makes it really difficult for people to sue police over incidents of misconduct and get any type of result. And Democrats bill would actually significantly limit its protections, whereas the Republican bill doesn't really address it at all. And Tim Scott, who is the lead senator on the legislation, has already said that it's quote unquote, a poison pill for Republican senators. So not to expect too much movement on that front. When we talk about these bills that the House and the Senate Republicans and even the executive order that the president put out there, it's going to be very difficult to have this all trickle down to the state and local level where policing is done. We have 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and everything's done on this local level. So the way that they're leveraging their power is through federal grant money, basically saying if you don't meet certain standards or don't create this database or whatnot, we're not going to give you federal dollars. Is that the way all of them are working? A lot of them are working that way. That's correct. I think a key distinction you see is in Democrats' bill, for example, they have federal bans on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And what that means is the DOJ is then able to hold officers accountable if they end up using either of those tactics. Whereas in the Republican one, they don't have outright bans, but they do use that same tactic you described of only giving out federal grant money to police stations that end up implementing these policies. What did they say about these uh, de-escalation guidelines that they want the Department of Justice to make? And they want to be able to use the DOJ to basically track who at the state and local levels has actually undertaken this type of training. So you'd be able to look at like a record or a database and figure out what police stations have done it and which ones have not. The Republican bill also establishes a commission on the social status of black men and boys. How would this work? That would include officials and a range of experts doing a deep dive analysis across both the criminal justice system as well as other areas, including education and housing, to look at how racial disparities in those subject areas affect black men and boys. And what they would do is produce an annual report documenting everything that they found and the policy recommendations they have to address those gaps. What do we know about any type of possible compromise? I know there's a few key things each side is going to want to fight for, but at least everybody putting something on the table right now signals that they know the time is here to implement some type of police reforms. Even the president is on board in that way. So what can we expect on the fight for some type of compromise? The sense that they need to get something done, even if it's not exactly what each party wants, is certainly there. And the House and the Senate will probably pass their versions of the bills next week. The question about compromise, I think, is the bigger one about if lawmakers can keep up momentum on this issue. Unfortunately, in the past on subjects like gun reform, for example, there's been a ton of public pressure, a ton of momentum. But unfortunately, because of gridlock and the inability to find common ground, nothing ends up materializing. So the hope is that this doesn't take place again on this issue. Lee Zhou, politics reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. They launched it yesterday. And amazingly, since yesterday, they've had over 6 million downloads in a country of 83 million. That is pretty good, actually, because the French app was launched on June the 2nd, and it's only had 1.7 million downloads in those two weeks. Joining us now is Boyan Panchevsky. 
German correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Boyan. Hey, good to be here. Wanted to talk about some of the contact tracing apps that have launched across Europe. Here in the United States, we're expecting to do something very similar. I think a lot of states are working on their own apps. So it's going to be pretty crazy if we have 50 different apps trying to track people. But we'll have to see how that all rolls out. We're kind of in the early stages still. They're finalizing some of it, but none of them have really been released just yet. So there in Europe, there are already a few that have been released. Germany became the largest Western country to launch their contact tracing smartphone app. Tell us a little bit about that one. Here, European countries, each of them are doing their own apps, which are not necessarily compatible with each other, not always. And because Europe is tightly integrated, it's not one country like the United States, but people travel across for work, for everything intensely. So I think it will be a similar dilemma for the authorities when they have a bunch of different apps. Now, the thing with the German app is that obviously Germany is, is the most populous country, smack in the middle of the continent. And it has waited uh, fairly long to release the app because there are huge privacy concerns in this country. People are very much concerned about data privacy. So the original proposal from the government had to be amended many times in order to sort of comply with these very strict data privacy recommendations. They launched it yesterday. And amazingly, since yesterday, they've had over 6 million downloads in a country of 83 million. That is pretty good, actually, because the French app was launched on June the 2nd, and it's only had 1.7 million downloads in those two weeks. So the Germans seem to be eager to download the app and use it, and we're about to see if the app becomes useful, because these apps really get useful when a lot of people use them, and therefore their effect is amplified. Experts we're estimating that 60% of a country's population would need to use the app for it to be effective in preventing some type of second wave or something. And the use of the app there in Germany specifically is voluntary. I guess some numbers coming out from people talking about it, they said 41% of Germans have been willing to download it, while 46% said they wouldn't use it. So, I mean, right away, that's going to be a big hurdle to overcome. The 60% of penetration that's required for the app to basically stopped the spread of the epidemic. That is a figure that's only valid if all other measures are not really in place. And the other measures include basically social distancing, heightened hygiene, and stuff like that. And these are things that people are actually doing. They're wearing masks here in Berlin, for example. You have to wear a mask if you go to a supermarket. You have to wear a mask if you use the public transport system. So you've got all sorts of measures that are already in place and people have changed their behavior. So these figures have to be taken with a pinch of salt. Tell us how the app works. It connects using Bluetooth with other phones. If you're sitting next to somebody for longer than 15 minutes, it connects those phones. So later on, if there's an outbreak, it knows you were with that person. Tell us how it works. There are different type of apps, different type of technologies. You know, some apps are actually using... GPS data, for example, in Asia, and that would be considered intrusive in this country so that they couldn't use that. Essentially, they use the Bluetooth technology, which is this kind of wireless technology, this wireless system that you can switch on on your mobile. If you have an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever you have, they all have the option to switch on the Bluetooth connection. And once you switch it on and you have the app downloaded and you have the app on, then the app is sort of 
sending a Bluetooth signal around you, and anyone else with an app will receive that signal if they're using the app. So if your two phones are in proximity of each other, which is closer than two meters, and if you stay in that proximity for over 15 minutes, then the apps will sort of save each other's codes. With that Bluetooth signal goes a little code that the other mobile phone is recording. And then if you go back home and you do a coronavirus test and it turns out you're positive, then you have the option of entering your diagnose in the actual app. Then if you choose to do that, then the app will send out this signal through the internet this time to every other app that had been in your proximity and that had saved your code. So people will not know who you are because the code is anonymized. They will not know that this particular person got infected. Your identity will be kept secret, but they will have a little message pop up on their screen saying you had been exposed to someone who has now been confirmed to have the coronavirus. And then, of course, on the back of that, you can decide to do a test yourself or you can decide to change your behavior perhaps and stay at home for the next week or two until you're all clear so you don't infect anyone else. Obviously, it's up to the people to decide what they do. Nobody will actually force them, and there is no sort of central record of these infections. So it, it's very much based on, on people doing the right thing. Boyan Panchevsky, Germany correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The number of cases and the whole sort of epidemic curve in these different countries is if children didn't get it very often. In fact, roughly half as often as people over 20, I think anyone up to the age of 20. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science writer at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me. I'm going to talk about some uh, new details that we have, something that we kind of knew already, but we're getting more data behind it now about children and teenagers and how they're affected by coronavirus. They're actually only half as likely to get infected by coronavirus right now. We're learning. Tell us a little bit more about this. Well, keep in mind that this is all preliminary provisional. We're just figuring this out. So this is a new estimate. It is very plausible that children don't get the virus as easily. They can get it and they can get sick. But according to this new study that just came out in Nature Medicine, you know, reliable peer-reviewed journal, they looked at six countries, China and Singapore, I think South Korea, they looked at six countries and found in general that it appears that the only way you can explain the number of cases and the whole sort of epidemic curve in these different countries is if children didn't get it very often. In fact, roughly half as often as people over 20, anyone up to the age of 20. And the other thing they found is that only about 21% of the children who got the virus actually showed symptoms. That's very low. For people over 70, three out of four actually get symptomatically sick. So the age difference is, is a big signal here, and obviously it has implications for schools. Everybody's wondering how to reopen the schools right now. The leading well, thing we're hearing is some type of hybrid learning. Still some people at home doing remote learning, maybe some instruction with kids in the actual school, but at least this could bode well for that. 
the science can't answer all the questions about what we should do. What it can tell you is the likelihood of kids getting sick, the likelihood that they do get sick, how bad it will be. Unanswered in this new study is, well, how easily do they transmit it to adults, including, for example, their own teacher or bringing it back home to their parents? We hear from people who are concerned about schools reopening because the likelihood that it could cause some additional spread of the virus. But we also know there's a lot of parents out there who are really losing their minds as they're trying to balance childcare and work and all the other responsibilities of life. And the kids themselves, in many cases, they're, you know, they're just not learning anything. They're taking a real hit and it can be mentally stressful for them. We want the schools to reopen fundamentally. I mean, I think everyone wants that. It needs to be done in a safe fashion. And the question is, when do you do it? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot of stories about this learning gap that's going to be evident this year. There's a lot of school districts around the country that just really weren't prepared to do the remote learning thing so quickly and in such large scale. So I know that there's a lot of people eager to get back into that in-school instruction. And I guess parents can at least feel a little better knowing that their kids might be safe. But you're right. The bigger concern is because the kids can still get it and still spread it. What about transmission other places? So that obviously that's going to be the big concern right there. And there's some other data too that's interesting too. We're talking about the kids and that, but the CDC had just said for people with underlying health conditions, which we already know affects them a lot more, they're hospitalized six times more often than others, and they die 12 times more often than people that don't have the same underlying health conditions. So it is this weird polar opposite thing when it comes to younger people and older people. From the beginning, one of the clear signals is being older raises your risk a lot. That is your risk of a serious outcome. Most people who are sick and are even hospitalized with COVID are not particularly elderly. In terms of people who have a fatal case of it, very high rates among the elderly and among people, as you said, who have these comorbidities. Now, when you talk about comorbidities, tens of millions of people just in the U.S. alone. Just think of all the people you know who have either a heart condition or they have some autoimmune disorder, the HIV positive, There's a lot of, a lot of issues that millions and millions of people are affected by that. And what I've been told by the experts is age is the biggest risk factor. Being over 60, 70, 80, 85, the older you are, the much higher risk of a bad outcome because of the immunosenescence. Your immune system gets dysregulated. It is more vulnerable to those cytokine storms you've probably heard about where it overreacts to the virus and you have these really bad pneumonia-like symptoms. Uh, and it's scary. I, you know, I have an elderly mom. I worry about her. And so, you know, I'm like, mom, don't go running around town. Take this seriously. This is unlike flu, by the way, because flu does, influenza does make children sick and it is dangerous for small children. We don't see that with the coronavirus. Joel Achenbach, science writer at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.